Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Dan Edwards, who is a parkour coach and teacher of teachers. He's a founding member and executive director of Parkour Generations, an international organization of parkour instructors with schools all over the world. And he's also the author of the Parkour and Free Running Handbook. And he has something of a sword background. You can find Dan at danedwards.com. That's D-A-N-E-D-W-A-R-D-E-S.com and at parkourgenerations.com. So, without further ado, Dan, welcome to the show. Guy, thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in London at the moment, in Wimbledon, where I live, happily. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, have, I'm, I'm, I normally do travel a lot, but um, pre-pandemic, obviously. But uh, yes. since the pandemic, you know, I've done no international travel for the, for the longest period of my life, staying in one place. So, it's, uh, it's, been, but it's been quite nice. So. Yeah, I pretty much had the same experience, like... You know, yeah, two same. years without without leaving the country was just weird. Yes. I managed to get to Finland in November, um, okay. and I dressed it up as a work trip. Like I had a seminar and everything, yeah, but that good. wasn't why I went. I went. <laughs> I went just to see my friends. Really, yes. I mean, really. <laughs> yes. No, but that's good. I mean, that's, um, that's that's good. You should you should you know that sort of thing is important. Yeah. If you travel a lot, yeah, you do miss it. So, yeah, and and I'm actually. The worst of it is missing my friends who live in other countries. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been super tough for, for so many people on that front and, and really unnatural. Yeah. Just breaking up the connectivity of the world in that way physically yeah. has been, yeah, really unnatural, I think. So I'm very glad that's all ending now and we can get back to that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Yes. Omicron yeah. could just fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> we will definitely hope that is the case. Yes. Um, I, I'm pretty hopeful this time, but, but like, like you, like you say, you never know. Actually, there's a curveballs can come, it seems. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, according to your bio, and yeah, we've met before and we've talked about this a little bit, but my listeners weren't listening then. So let's, mm-hmm. let's rehash it for their benefit. Um, you came across parkour while you were in Japan, and you went to Japan for the best of all possible reasons. Would you care to elaborate? <laughs> I did, yes. I, I, I did discover parkour while I was in Japan. Not, not that anyone else was training in Japan, but I saw it on, on, a, on a cinema in Japan, um, the original movie, Yamakasi, which featured the founding guys. So so I saw it while I was living out there um, and got and therefore started training. But the, the reason I was in Japan in the first place was to study um, swordsmanship. So I'm... I went there to swordsmanship and other martial arts, but um, I went there uh, primarily to to train in the Katori Shintori, which which is um, a school you can only train in in Japan. In in one, there's only one school, so um, and it's the oldest extant um, Japanese martial arts. Um, so it's kind of the origin of all their sword arts came from the, the Shintori. So um, I. I and, I, and I'd known about that since I was a kid and studying the martial arts. So I'd always wanted to train that. So that's why I went to Japan. Yeah. And I lived there for five years training that um, and training in Aikido and, and shoot fighting and, um, and various other things, Tamashigiri as well. So, so I was kind of, I was there for the, for the martial arts, but while there I encountered Parkour and started training in that too. Yeah. Okay. So just, just for the listen, Tamashigiri is the cutting of prepared mats with sharp swords 
Well, we, we call it test cutting and we do a lot of it with, with our swords, but um, it's more of a, its own separate thing over there, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's a it's a bit of a strange thing in a way. In the um, so I was lucky in that I I I you know I was admitted into the the Shinto Ryu and and started training there. And there were very few Westerns that trained in the school back then. It was it was really rare. So um, so so I was lucky in that I started learning that. And, and at the same time and separately, I encountered a um, I found a. a a sword teacher um, called Wakinagasan, who um, was was this old Japanese guy who um, who taught Tamashigiri, and he he didn't really he didn't really have any sort of respect or any interest in the Ryuha in the in the actual Japanese sword schools. Um, he didn't really give them much the time of day. He just he he was just into how swords work and 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 how do you cut stuff and and does it and does it work and and you know and 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 the techniques around that so what actually works so he was i guess he was the equivalent of like the, the a combatives instructor in swordsmanship he was like i'm only interested in what works not in any of the faff any of the tradition any of the ritual so i, I had both sides it's quite it's quite rare for that from a japanese person mm. but so I, I came across both sides and it's a, it was always a bit strange to me that none of the or very few of the ryuha in Japan, and certainly very even fewer of the Iaido schools um, actually train cutting. They actually don't actually cut anything solid um, right. when, for, for years. Like they can train their whole lives without every kind of solid. And for me, that's a bit yeah. like a boxer never healing a bag. So yeah. you know, it's kind of like it's, you should do that if you're training with a, with a weapon. You should work like you should learn what does it actually feel like to hit something with this thing. And and you find out yeah. a lot when you do that. You know, it's a real. I mean, <laughs> I mean I, when I was out there, I I, I encountered the Ido instructors who were uh, who'd been training thirty forty years, and and Wakisan, who was a bit who was a bit um, who was a bit kind of cheeky and a bit playful in in, in his old age. He would he would uh, he would invite them to to have a go at uh, cutting stuff, um, and they would jump at it because they'd never done it, um, yeah. but then they couldn't cut anything. Really? Yeah, and it was like I'm appalled. Yeah, it was weird. It was, and I was. I remember thinking, wait, you guys have been training Iaido for thirty, forty years. Some of you, these old guys, and they literally couldn't cut through a tatami. They they would hit it and knock it over and stuff. And I was like, I've been I, doing, I to, I've been doing tamashigiri for like a training, year yeah. at that stage, and was slicing through stuff left, right, and center. Right, it was like I, I have students who've been training for a couple of months who cut stuff. Yeah, no, because you have to know what the blade actually does. Yeah, you'd think so, but no, there's a there's a lot of schools. Um, the majority of schools and the majority of 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 um, sword practitioners in in the Japanese style, and and, and I, I don't know about many others, but um, who never actually cut anything, which I thought was weird. Yeah, so I was lucky I, to to be exposed to both, and I found both, and and then and they, and they, and it it made both better. So sure. Uh, uh, Okay, we should maybe say that the hitting somebody in the head with a steel bar is going to have an effect whether you cut them or not. Sure. So, so in for actual combative stuff, I'm not hundred percent sure that that the cutting is as essential as it might appear. Although I'm you know a huge fan of it, um, and also the the way a tatami behaves sat on its stand waiting for you to cut it is quite different to the way a person behaves with holding a sword, and so. The, my my issue with test cutting when it's separated from the actual practical things is you'll do things that work really well for cutting inanimate objects, yes. but will get you killed in a fight. Like, for instance, I mean, I've, I've seen Tameshigiri competitions where people will step up to the stand 
prepare themselves and then <laughs> yes. strike. Yes, yeah, yes, do yes. that. Do that to a human being who's trying to murder you, and you get a sword through your head as you step forward. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which is why a combination so, of the two is good. You've got to you've got right, to learn how to exactly. fight with sword, and you've also got to learn the what it feels like when it hits it, something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because at either extreme, you lose something. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and and one of the most important reasons, I guess, to to, to learn the art of cutting, and the, in terms of combative reasoning, I suppose, is that um, if you cut well with a sword, certainly with the katana or Japanese blade um it doesn't do any it doesn't damage the sword at all they're actually quite fragile yes. so if you if you cut badly you can bend the sword you can <laughs> you can damage yeah. the sword and, and if in that that's going to ruin the rest of your fight so um if you're in a battle or whatever and you've got loads of people around you so you know that sword's got to last and therefore most of the cutting training one, one of the best reasons to train in that is that you preserve the sword um yeah. So uh, yeah, there's lots of good reasons to do it but yeah without the fighting art it's um it, without that without actually learning the the concepts of, of combat as well it's kind of it's, it's useless just as much as learning the concepts but without learning to hit so yeah both are good i think yeah um and then to to your point about wearing out the sword we do quite a lot of stuff sharp on sharp so we do we'll, beginner students use blunt swords obviously and then we use sharp swords for test cutting even even beginners can do that um but at a more advanced level we do all the drills and what have you with sharp swords yes and the way they behave against each other is different to the way blunt swords behave. Sure, yeah. Because they kind of bite. But also, they wear out. Yes. Right? I've, I've had swords that started out maybe two and a half inches wide, and by the time they were retired, they'd lost an inch in width. Yes. By being reground. Yeah, and this, I mean, this is the primary reason in the, in the Ryuha, in the, old, in the, the, the Koryu, the, the old schools in Japan, the primary reason they use Bokuto and wooden weapons is not to protect, a lot of people think, oh, you use your weapons to keep people safe. It's, no, it's nothing to do with that at no. all. The reason they switch to wooden weapons is to protect the weapons. Um, yeah. For exactly that reason, yeah, because you don't want to, you know, swords were expensive, they were rare, um, good ones, and you, and you didn't want to, um, you didn't want to damage making it. more people is free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you don't you don't want to damage your sword, so you know use wooden swords. Um, so yeah, that's uh, I think that's a, that's a, it's a very good point. Yeah. Okay, so you went to Japan to study swordsmanship. Was that actually your first martial arts stuff, or did you start no. martial arts in the UK? Yeah, and no, I grew up fanatical about martial arts. So I started studying when I was like probably well, I started fighting <laughs> when I was about eight, and then started training in a proper art at about sort of ten. Um, mm-hmm. and, and all through my teenage years was, was fanatically serious about training and, um, and, and the philosophy of the Asian arts uh, of East Asia as well and, um, and, and, and everything that comes with it. So I was, I was heavily, heavily um, immersed in, in, a, in a training childhood with lots of my friends as well and, and um, one of my brothers. And so it was, it was just part of the culture I grew up in, in a way or the, that we created. And then... Um, and then, yeah, when I finished university, um, that's when I went to live in Japan, and that's when I sought out the Shinto Ryu. It was the first, it was the first traditional sword art that I'd studied at great depth. So I trained with lots of different weapons, lots of different other other arts, lots of knife systems, stick, um, staff, uh, all, all different types of weapons, but but never really a traditional sword art. So it was the first time I'd studied that, um, and and it was quite eye opening for that reason. Uh, yeah, I, and I can just imagine there are probably many people listening at the moment who are just like, oh God, I want to go to Japan and do Catherine Shintoryu because it sounds just amazingly cool. So, okay, for their sake, how do you, how, 
when you move, you, you go to Japan, I assume you need to find a job, you need to have an income, whatever, you need to uh, like show up at the dojo and say, please, will you train me? And they're probably going to say, no, go away. So you have to come back a few times. And what was that actually like? Yeah, it was. it's interesting. Um, the, on the career side, so I, I went out, uh, I, I got a job as a lecturer at a university. I spoke Japanese because I studied Japanese at university. So, so oh, that's very handy. It's very handy. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you, oh, yeah, <laughs> glad yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah, that, that makes really a big helps. difference. Yeah. Okay. So my degrees were in Japanese and, and history. So so I went to, um, so I was able to get a job out there at a, at a university. So I was, I was a lecturer. Um, and and that in the Japanese universities, not not to, not to put them down, they're they're not as um, well, they certainly weren't when I was there. They weren't as um, as rigorous, let's say, as 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 Western universities. So being a lecturer there was quite an easy lifestyle. You had a lot of time to yourself. Okay. Um, wasn't very hard work at all. <laughs> you know, good holidays, and so I had plenty of time to train, and that's that's why I was there. So so I spent um, you know a lot a lot of time training, and and the. Very early on, yeah. That I, that obviously, I went to 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 the school to the Shinto Ryu and, and managed to, um, uh, you know, there's always this myth of um, uh, you, you go to, Jap- um, uh, you know, at the old Asian schools, you have to um, you have to sit outside their door for for three months and and you know until they let you in. But <laughs> yeah. um, is that kind of thing, right? And that, that it's there's elements of that. There were elements of that. There aren't any more, I think, in in, in the Shinto Ryu. It's much more open now than when I joined, but. Um, I had to definitely. There was a period of yes, you have to you have to show your interest and enthusiasm for a period of time before you're allowed to join. So you have to be committed. You have to keep sort of inquiring, keep showing up um, until eventually um, they say, yeah, okay, you can join. You ba- you basically have to show you're serious. But the 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 Shinto Ryu is not a. It, it's interesting in that it's it, within its very um, uh, kind of the laws of the school. The code that that you um that you, that you follow and you sign up to it still has the blood oath. The Kepan is the only school that still does the blood oath, and, and it, um in that it's, it specifically says the Shinto Ryu is not a secret. It's not a it's not an art that's designed only for a certain class. It was right from its start. It was open to anyone, peasants and samurai and and whatever alike. And that was quite rare. Uh, it's the only and it's the oldest school still alive, still going, but it but it had that in its code. So it, it was. Its philosophy is: if you are serious, we will teach you. It doesn't matter where you are from, or you know, whatever. Which is why Westerners like me could join. So, but yeah, there was an element of that, um, and and I had to sort of show that I was there seriously, and and that I was there to learn, and I was training in other arts, and I spoke Japanese, which really really helped. There's no doubt about that, <laughs> um, because they could they were then like, okay, he's interested in Japanese culture, he's he's taking the time to learn our language, all right. So that that made a huge difference, and um, and yeah, and then I was, I was admitted and. And and started to train, yeah. So which was, was pretty cool. I mean, you know, I, the, you, I'm sure you've seen it. The, the old Where the Warrior series on BBC, um, which was 1980 documentary. Oh my god, go back and watch that. So okay. a, there was a documentary series called Where the Warrior um, by by BBC Two in 1980. Um, okay. And it, each episode is on a different martial art, and one episode was on the Shinto Ryu. Um, at the school, and it shows Otaka Sensei in the school, and, and really, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, okay. To, in my defence, I was seven years old, and we were living in Argentina at the time. <laughs> well, I was so I was five, um, so I didn't watch it in 1980, but um, I watched it at about like 1983 or four or something. Um, and I remember watching okay. it, thinking, you know, that is is like a, you look at it and you think that's mythical stuff. This this old Japanese school, mm. and it, wow. Um, and then you know, you put it to the back of your head, and you go off and you train in in 
Lias, I did karate and kung fu and 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 various combative stuff and Thai boxing and boxing and whatever. Um, so when the opportunity came to like actually be sort of autonomous and sort of I can go anywhere I want to do anything I want, it was sort of well, why not learn that school? Why not go there and learn that thing that is this mythical school in Japan? So it was kind of when I actually there was a moment I suppose when I started training and I did the blood oath. I thought this is crazy in that I'm actually here. Uh, okay. I'm actually training so, with these guys. I, I I don't know how much you're allowed to to tell us about these things, but tell us about the blood oath. What actually is it? What do you do? So the blood oath is yeah. Again, it's not it's not there's, there's it's not massive secrets around the blood oath itself. There are certain things that Shinto you, you you can't um, do and and show. I suppose to to non members sure. of the school. But um, no, the blood oath is is um, is effectively you have a chat with the with the head teacher who was Otaku Sensei at the time, who who died earlier this year, uh, sadly, um, uh, and he was the he was the head teacher for however long, sixty, seventy years or whatever. Um, so you sit down with him, you have you chat with him. He explains kind of about the school um, a little bit um, and asks you a few questions, um, and then you're presented with a um, he he then writes a, a, a document that basically admits you to the school on a certain date with your name and all that. And then, um, and then you, uh, and then he gives you a knife, and you have to cut your hand and put your thumb in the blood and put the blood to the to the certificate. Um, so that's that's the, the blood oath you're signing in your blood. Um, so it's pretty pretty simple, really. Um, and for them, it's very matter of fact because they've been doing it for hundreds of years, and you know they do it all the time. <laughs> so, um, <with> the, <laughs> so, but yeah, when you when you're doing it for the first time, you're kind of like. Wow, this is this, oh, this sure. is pretty rare. This pretty you just think this is this is pretty rare. There's not many places in the world that would that would expect you to sign in your blood, you know, anymore. Um, <laughs> but for me, obviously, it was, right. I was I was I loved it. I was like, this is this is this is excellent. This is um, this is good. This, okay. is, this is serious. Okay, you're the only person I know who has actually sworn a blood oath in real life. At least as far as I'm aware. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. The way it's always shown in movies is you take a sharp knife and you hold it in your hand really tight and you pull it through thus slicing through all the muscles and tendons and everything and ruining your hand forever okay that's what would happen what is the actual technique for actually cutting your hand properly you cut your finger yeah no you don't and it's exactly that you would never cut your hand because the last thing a swordsman no. wants to do is disable their, their hand right exactly, so, exactly. No, you don't do that you cut the back of your finger with the knife the knife is very sharp and you cut your knife your yeah. back of your finger with it and, the, and, it, and it welds up okay. and then you take the blood um so but yeah because that's there's no it doesn't matter what you do there it's not going to affect anything you do because there's just the back of the thing it's not the tendons or anything so um yeah no you would you, you don't cut a hand though. um and the knife is super <laughs> okay, sharp so, so you, you know you barely feel it really you feel it after but you barely feel it while you're doing it because it's so sharp okay and were you actually instructed in how to do it properly before you had to do it a little bit, yeah. They, they. I mean, super okay. quick. Otaki Sensei just gives you the knife and he points to that and says, just sort, he just sort, you know, demonstrates the movement and says, just do that. Right. And then you're like, okay, okay. put it on the table, whack. And, and basically, all I was thinking was, don't chop your finger off. Don't chop your finger <laughs> off. Because you, you yeah, don't want to, yeah. you know, you're in front of Otaki Sensei, you don't want to mess it up. You don't want to not right. cut it because you, you're like, I'm here to do this. I must do this. But therefore, you, you've got not adrenaline, but you're quite, you know, you're, you're in the moment. And I, was, I remember just thinking, don't cut too hard because I don't want to lose the finger. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you're not a yakuza who's just been naughty and is apologising to his boss. Exactly, exactly. So, and all, figure, those, all those thoughts go through your mind of like, oh my god, that's what happens. Don't do that. Um, so, yeah, no. So it's not it's not that bad, but um, yeah. And then it wells up, and you bandage it, and you start training. That's it. Cool. Okay. So that's that's quite a significant sort of initiation ritual into sort of membership of the school. 
Um, but as far as I'm aware, you're not still training there. So what what was it like leaving the school? Having so I did continue training when I came worked. back to the UK. There is a small mm-hmm. group. When I, so when I came back to the UK, there is a um, there was uh, there were basically two practitioners in the UK. Um, okay. One of which was um, uh, Mike Jay, who was who's was one of the first Westerners ever to join the school. Um, uh, and he's kind of quite famous in himself in those circles. There was, there, he was in a, a, a documentary um, because he was the kind of a, he married into a samurai family anyway. So it's, it's kind of a, he's a, he's a, he's sort of following in the footsteps of, of um, William Adams in, in being an Englishman who, who sort of became samurai in a way. Not that you can these days, but um, uh, so I trained with Mike, um, and he was um, he was a teacher in the school. So he he lived in Japan for a long time, thirty years, and, and he was living in London. So I met him, tra- carried on training with him, uh, and one other guy, Alan Gill, who joined after me, um, uh, and and then he came back to the UK. So there was there was a small group of us, and we and we we trained for for many many years. I haven't trained for the last couple of years, um, for just because my my focus has gone into other. Th- training elements i guess and obviously the pandemic all everything shut down but um uh so it's been sort of two three years i guess since i trained this in 30 years but yeah i trained it from 99 in japan through to about 2017 in the uk something like that Re- pre- like every, every okay so see so, so so while you were doing all the parkour stuff which we are definitely going to be going into in some detail but so you actually kept up your training oh yeah yeah and, and i still do now i just don't train with the group so much so i still train the iaijutsu um and uh, uh some of those solo skills um i just don't have the at the moment i can't access like where they're the, the, like this small group that still trains i can't really access them at the moment regularly so um and because of my travel before the pandemic i was traveling so much it kind of got very tough to maintain it um but yeah i, I still do now i still train the ojutsu and um and, and and that stuff so you kind of keep that going yeah and in kapitari do they have uh sort of like sparring and that sort of thing so it's based on the, the main um chunk of the practice is based on what are called kata which are basically two two people you know, as you, as you know, I'm sure two people going going at each other in these kata, these 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 very complex, very fast, very dynamic um, kata um, between sword and sword, sword and spear, sword and naganata, sword and bow, um, sword and two swords, um, and they're uh, they're very dynamic, they're very fast, but they are kata, they they are um, um, patterns that you use. So um, there's no pure sparring in it, which is again interesting as well. Yeah, when you come when you look at like which schools spar and which don't. Um, but there are, there, are, there are in-depth reasons as to why they, they moved away from that hundreds of years ago and moved into like, actually, this is probably going to be a better way for us to train the swords. Um, okay. so, so it's quite interesting. Yeah. But the, and, and I love the sparring. And when I was growing up, obviously I did tons of that and in, in, obviously in all the unarmed arts, I did a lot of that. Um, and then I did a lot of sword sparring as well, um, myself before I started, as I say, it was the first traditional sword art I learned, but I, I, with my group of friends, we got have, we we engaged with a lot of sort of sword play <laughs> ourselves <laughs> and against other swordsmen like kendoka and that sort of stuff. We would seek them out and fight them, and um, so I kind of knew what it was like to fight with a weapon as well. But in the Shintori, there's no pure sparring, though. Okay, and you said there were reasons for that. Um, what are they? Yeah, so the the reasoning in the in the school is that. Um, which you can go into into great depth with the, with the Taika Sensei or, or with the, whoever is the head teacher or whatever. But the reasoning in the school mainly is that the um, the reflexes that they they are trying to build into people 
um, for sword fighting because sword fighting is so uh, dangerous and so mm-hmm. so one of the things that 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 I noted very quickly about that sort of fighting and and all sort of armed fighting rather than unarmed is in unarmed fighting you can afford to make mistakes and make errors and get hit yeah. and you know whatever but with a we- as soon as weapons are involved you can't really afford to make a mistake right. um so you have to be very very precise and very you have it has to work first time so so the yeah. reflexes they're trying to build into you um from all the movements they engage in which you, this is why you do it at such speed and they're very alive kata they're not just you know you're never allowed to go through them just plodding through them like you are when you're doing kata yeah. by yourself in martial arts it's very much responsive so you know what the opponent's going to do you don't know exactly when they're going to do it uh, or how fast or anything like that. And when they do it, right. you, your response has to be immediate. And and then and there, are, there are hundreds of movements in each kata. So it's very complex. Um, and what it's trying to do is take out your conscious thinking and replace it with uh, a kind of limbic brain response to that attack coming in so that your body will react and do that in the time um, and will do exactly the right thing. Because you can remember the kata they designed mostly are designed against armor. So you're designed mm-hmm. if you're fighting against someone in armor. So all the cuts are designed to find the weak points in their armor. Um, so it's it's not it wouldn't be good enough just to smack him on the head because he got a helmet. So yeah. you, you've got to find the the weak points. So every cut has to be super precise and it has to be so quick that you can consciously sort of think about it. So in a way, they're kind yeah. to train. In a way, it's interesting because it means the old old arts had the understanding that. The startle reflex and and subconscious movement, um, limbic brain movement is quicker than than prefrontal cortex movement control controlled movement, which is we understand through parkour and all that as well. So and quicker and better and more effective. So if you can train that, if you can access that, if you can train the element of your brain that can access that in combat, you will be more efficient um, rather than trying to work out in the moment what the best thing is to do to respond or to act or whatever. So. That's kind of the, the one of the explanations behind it um, is to is to train those instant and perfect reflex to something coming in at you, um, which is which is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's pretty much how I approach things. Um, my my school, my way of training has a lot more of the kind of set pair drills than many of my colleagues do. Right. Yep. Um, I include. Sort of sparring at, or free play, whatever, however you want to call it, as a kind of, um, well, when, whenever you're doing a drill, it's not always exactly correct. As you said, you know, you might, you might adjust the timing. You yes. might adjust the measure a little bit, right? You might, you might mess around with it a little bit to make sure the person is responding to what they're actually seeing rather than what they think is coming. Yeah. Right. Yes. yes. Um, and when you make enough of those changes, you are effectively free play. Yes. Absolutely. Right. So, so to my mind, it is, it's a really great place to go to generate mistakes, right? Which you can then uh, use the, the less free training patterns to correct those mistakes. Yes. So you might notice in free play that you are vulnerable to a cut up under your arms because you just don't see it that often. Yeah. Right. So that tells you, okay, right now I need to, the exercises we do around cuts under the arms, that's what I need to focus on for the next month. Yeah. Yep. Or the next, however long. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Uh, and I think a combination of the two is best. I, I, same as unarmed stuff. I think, you know, if you don't have live, the, you know, the, the, that old phrase, like the, the, all training is fake, but the idea is to find the least fake shit out there, right? So, <laughs> you know, because training is not fighting. So, um, right. 
but the, the closer you can make it to fighting, the more your body will be ready for it when it actually happens. So, so, so sparring is a really good, or free play is a really good thing to do. Um, and, and if you inform it with drills that are, that are trying to teach you the right techniques and trying to drill them in as, as, as immediate reactions, then if you combine the two, you, you probably produce like the, the, maybe the, the optimal outcome. So, so it's it's interesting that they don't, but yeah, in a way, the Shinto forms are in a way they they're so alive that they are kind of like sparring because you choose you choose the timing, you choose the you choose the distance. You know, sometimes you I mean, people get I, I saw people get knocked out in the school during kata quite regularly like, um, because <laughs> okay. if, if you if you weren't quick enough and you got hit or you did the wrong response or whatever, you know, you 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 would get hit. Or if you went too fast, if you're fighting with one of the if you're training with one of the more experienced students and you. And you start to, it's very easy to see when someone's just going through the motions, right? So they're, yeah. they're predicting attacks and they're, they're, um, you know, they're not trying to hit the opponent. They're trying slightly to the left or to the right. Um, oh, God, yes. All that kind of crap. And if you, if the, if you, if the senior students saw that during training, they would make an example of it. They, they would, they would either preempt your attack to show that they knew exactly what you were going to do, or they would just stand there and let you miss and then hit you. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I've done that many times. Yeah. And it's a, it's it's, a good learning tool, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's normal. You know, if you've got a drill that goes on for several steps, and if you're thinking about, I don't know, step four, then your step one and two are going to be a bit crap. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you've got to be thinking about the one that you're, or you'll be focused. Thinking is the wrong word. You've got to be focused on the one that you're doing when you're doing it. Yeah. And let the ones that happen next happen next. Yes, exactly. So liveness drill. Yeah. You've got you've got to stay in the moment. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's a very complex thing to learn, to, and to train. It takes a long time to learn the, the basic syllabus of all the weapons, um, and the use of the weapons and the and. But it's but it's the good thing about it is what what I what I really love about it is that it is as stripped down as possible. There is compared to all the other Koryu that I experienced out there, most of the most of the other Koryu, which a lot of been have been recreated over time, or they died out and then they were brought back hundreds of years later. So it kind of reinvented in a way. A lot of them mm-hmm. were full of um, you know, um ritual and paraphernalia and huge sort of um uh ritualistic respectful forms before you right. actually train and the shinto ryo has none of that it is completely stripped down <laughs> they they do a little bow you know as into the dojo yeah. that's it and then you give a little bow to your partner and then you train it and it's just non-stop training so for the whole two hours three hours that you're in a class or whatever or the training in the in the dojo it's it's non-stop um so you don't get any rest <laughs> and you and there's no there's no faff around it you know there's no there's no kind of extra sort of ritualistic flowery stuff that's been added on um, because yeah. they're, they're really trying to keep it as, 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 as original as it was, which was an art to train soldiers. Um, you know, that, mm. that's what these, these schools were. They were arts to train soldiers to kill in battle. So they didn't have much paraphernalia and, you know, ritual and all that stuff. So it's a very, um, it's a very simplistic, practical school. Um, and I, I love that. I, that, that, that aligns with my approach to, to fighting into martial arts as well is, is like the more practical elements. So, um, so it's quite interesting in that, and it's very old. It's the oldest one, but it's probably, and it's the one that has the most respect in Japan. It's a, it's an intangible national, national cultural treasure, and all this. And uh, and Otaku Sensei, the head teacher of the of the school, the head teacher of the Shinto Ryu, is the guy who, if you try to take a sword out of Japan, an old sword, a Shinken, yeah, um, out of Japan through the airports, he is the guy because he lives near Narita. The school is about an hour from yeah. Narita Airport. 
that school, the head teacher, the guy is the guy they asked to come to the airport to check the sword to see if it's allowed to leave the country. So wow. it's super important the school in Japan, um, and yeah. yet they're they're completely they have no interest in in kind of ritual and pet and all that sort of stuff. It's just like no, we just we just we just train, we just need to train and, and learn how to <laughs> use the weapons really well and learn how to kill with the weapons, and that's it. Um, yeah, I so. I think Dave Lowry wrote something about this. Like the the more rituals there are around the drills, the newer the school. Yeah. That's probably that's probably an inverse proportionate relationship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it was in his book "Brush and the Pen." Um, right. you, you must be familiar with his. his yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've read it, but I can't remember it that well. Um, yeah, autumn lightning, persimmon wind. Yes, yes, it's, yes. Do you know? I really ought to get him on the show. I think he'd be a really yeah. Good the books are good. I mean, yeah. it's a long time since I read them, but yeah, they were good. Um, yeah, because he sort of did the same sort of thing, but he started out in the states uh, right. because there happened to be a pretty high level teacher in his hometown and he did the thing where you know you knock on the door no sorry no not today and then you come back the next day no sorry not today and you keep doing that for a few weeks and then yes. oh okay fine and you come and you know that yeah there, there's I, I like all of that stuff but I don't do any of it <laughs> <laughs> no I mean it's, yeah it's not a, it's not um, yeah it's not necessary these days I suppose but in some ways in some ways there are in some ways, I still see the 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 you know wh- why you would do it as as a teacher and with a school. I can still see why you would yeah check you know the, because then you know you've got serious students. So you're not going to get people turn up and just drift in and out for a few months or whatever. They've, they've, you know, it's very clearly not a club. The school is a school. Right. It's not like you, you. They don't want you to just join, and turn up, and bugger off after a couple of months. You know, had a bit. No, they're they're very serious about this. Is a school. If you join, this is an art. You you will train for many years, if not your whole life, um, and it, it and therefore they're quite serious about that and the main thing that keeps that serious is that in order to do the Kepan and join the school you have to go to Japan and you have to go to Chibiken and this little village in near Narita um, and you have to spend time there and then you have to do the blood oath and that's the only way certainly when I joined that was the only way you'd be taught the, taught the art there's no other way you can learn it unless you've done that blood oath they, you're not allowed to be taught it none of the other men part of the oath is you're not allowed to teach someone that isn't a member of the school so um, okay. so that keeps it very serious in a way you can't just yeah sign up but unless you're willing different... to travel there <laughs> yeah we have we have we have completely different um, so I guess needs is probably the right word like so for historical martial arts these days our our traditions died or they changed into completely other forms yeah like you know a T-Rex is related to a chicken but they don't really look the same Yes. Um, and so we are less concerned with making sure only the serious people get it and more concerned with making sure lots and lots of people hear about it so the people who might become serious will become attracted to it. Yes. Um, so we have quite different... Also, we don't have like the government of any country telling us that we are intangible national <laughs> treasures and to be revered and respected and all that lot. No, it's like... Oh, bunch of nutters with swords. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a bit different over here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right, and it depends on the goal of the. What's the goal of the arm? What's the goal of the people behind it? And and obviously, as you, I, I, you know, as you say, most martial arts, um, when they came to the West from the East, because obviously most of the West, a lot of the Western ones died out, but most of the most of the Eastern ones that came over here and were adopted over here, they pretty quickly became, you know, big business. 
um and yeah. and they were and therefore they were spread for other reasons and they also had were were as you say the chicken and the tyrannosaurus thing they 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 were no longer they were no longer fighting arts they were no longer designed to 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 train um soldiers and killers they were they were trained for social reasons for personal development reasons for health reasons right. for which is great um and those those arts you do want to expand to thousands and millions of people because you want all those people to get the benefits um but yeah an art that is designed <laughs> kind of primarily for killing is something that's like yeah you don't want millions of people to learn that way you know? no, um, you really don't. so yeah it's, it's it comes down to what, what why do you want to learn and what, what's the purpose of the school what's the goal of the school i guess um yeah but i one thing i have come across many times in historical martial arts and sort of my circles is people who who think the whole killing thing is is cool and aspirational and so they want the thing that they're doing to be all about that but they don't want to sit down and have like the ethical discussion of well okay under what circumstances is it actually all right to slam a sword through somebody's face yes right because it, it's it's really not cool at all it's no. brutal and nasty and smelly and right i mean I, i've attended an autopsy it's not pleasant and and it, and the negative effects on you being the one that does it are also incalculable. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and and yeah, you see you see those sorts of problems in you know soldiers coming back from Afghanistan now as as they yeah. did from Vietnam and Korea and you know Second World War and that lot. It, it's it it takes a toll. Yes. And one which I I personally have no interest in paying. Yeah. <laughs> if I get to the end of my sword career without ever having killed anyone, I've won. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly, and and, and uh, but and, and there are so 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 you don't need to learn that those elements anymore. However, the as, as I'm sure you you know you know when you uh, when you train, there's a different I, I suppose um, outcome when you are training with the mindset of um, this 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 is a killing art kind of thing, and you yeah. really go into that as you say, you really go, you really go. What does that mean to me? Um, and you remember where it came from and what it was for and that it kind of changes your um, relationship with the techniques and with the movements and with the school itself. Um, and you, I suppose you, you, there's an area, there's an area, there's an, an air of more seriousness around it. So like, this is, yeah, this was for that. And I don't want to use it for that, but that's what this was for. And humanity learned this and trained mm. this and it was common and, you know, uh, and, and violence is still a common thing in the world. But so it helps you have a relationship with violence, I suppose, if you go deep into it, yeah. which is probably, and and most of the old samurai, you know, ways of training and, and the books and things like that, that were, and the philosophies, a lot of them early on were very much about that. Like you must you must have a relationship with death, you must accept death and understand death, um, and 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 therefore violence and, and killing and being killed. Um, and in doing so, I think you it doesn't necessarily make you a violent person or a killer. It can actually make you profoundly pacifistic, as it probably has with you, and that you you end up coming away with the, the reaction you had, which is I never want to do that. Because you now understand yeah. how bad it is, um, right? Exactly. So, it's so not, I think it can be. It's a good not thing. glamorous or sexy or cool. It's just fucking nasty. Yeah. But yeah. but it's that nastiness that adds the kind of moral depth to what we're doing. Yes. Because if if there's no, you know, if it's just a sport where you you you, you, you tap your friends with swords and whoever gets the most taps hit wins and you know da da da. It's fine. Nothing nothing wrong with that. And that's a useful aspect of training. Yep. But if you take if you take the killing side of it out entirely, then there is no moral depth to the art at all. It's entirely sort of 
um, it's a superficial thing to do. You don't actually have to sit and think about what are you willing to do and where are your boundaries and what is reasonable and you don't have to engage with any of that, which I think many people don't want to and that's fine. Right? There's nothing wrong with doing sports. No, 100% I don't not. Person, no. Yeah. I'm personally not into sports myself, but other people are and that's fine. Yeah. yeah no, and, and you can get a lot of the benefits from just the sport, but I, I'm actually really interested in the, in the moral aspect of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and I think that you learn... As you say, the, the majority of people are not really. The majority of people they're, they're not yeah. interested in that. They're doing it for health reasons, sport reasons, and all that, which is which is really great. and It should be that way. Um, but yes, there are certain people who, for whom it is a it's a it's a different tool. It's a different vehicle. It's a training in those arts and, and fighting arts in that way um, is is a vehicle by which to understand themselves and their own relationship with their own violence and their own anger and their own fear and their own uh, you know the nastier sides of ourselves. Maybe the the darker sides that we don't engage with very much the school this sort of training allows you to engage with that in a way but in a in a managed way you know and in a way that is that is rooted in a tradition from people that that did experience that and so they can pass this stuff on so in some ways it's it's a it's a really effective vehicle but to learn about yourself for self-knowledge if yeah. you're that kind of person that is seeking that kind of self-knowledge it's not going to appeal to everyone yeah. the fear thing is interesting because when somebody is swinging a sharp sword at your unprotected face even if you know that they have no intention to actually murder you, it's quite scary. Mm. Um, and you know that if you screw things up, they're going to have a very bad day because they'll feel really guilty and you'll have a very bad day because it's probably your last day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so and I, I know you, you, you've you said somewhere, I forget where, I just think maybe it's in one of your blog posts, the thing you want is on the other side of fear. Mm. And I remember when I was at... Uh, at your parkour school doing uh, a day seminar thing. Yeah. The the absolute best moment of the whole day for me was when this exercise we were doing, jumping from a little pad onto a, onto a low wall and you could take the distance you want or whatever. I, I went up to do it and my body literally froze and I kind of hung in the air off my, off my joints because something in the back of my head had just said no. Mm. Yes. And, and it was like, ah, oh, brilliant. Okay, so then I went back around to do it again. I knew that that was coming and I could get over it and I actually made the jump. And that was like, that was the thing. Yeah. That was the best bit, right? Yeah. So tell us about how jumping off buildings and stuff is really. Okay, and how, honestly, how, how the thing you want is on the other side of fear. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. You're exactly. I, well, I think you're exactly right, and you've explained it pretty well there. And that, and, that, um, and that's exactly why I learned why I fell in love with parkour from day one as well, is because the first jump I did was the same. It made me afraid, and I hadn't been afraid in a long time. Not viscerally like that. I got so used to fighting and 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 martial arts, and you know, rolling around with people and beating them up or whatever, and getting beaten up. So I was that didn't frighten me anymore. So um, when I first came to a jump in parkour, I remember the same thing as you. I was like, wow, this is really. <laughs> really scary i don't know if i've got the i know i knew i could do it technically and physically as you knew you could do it technically and physically but i was sort of like i know i could do this i should be able to do this but i'm scared of doing it um and that that fear was i engaged with that and went through the process to, to jump and, and after that i was like okay this is this is this is my art now <laughs> um because this is, this is missing <laughs> okay. from my life so um so parkour is i mean it's a, it's it, it, it is in a, way, in a way an embodied practice of fear I suppose parkour in that when you, okay. it, it probably shouldn't be because it's just natural movement. So if humanity was still moving around, you know, well and healthily and naturally like we did in in um, pre-industrial times, 
you know, probably wouldn't be. But for the fact is, most people in the modern world now don't engage with with anything that kind of scares them on a physical level um, uh, very much, not in a real visceral sense. So um, most people, especially adults, when they come to parkour, kids is a bit different, but when adults come to parkour, most of them feel fear, exactly like you did, like straight away, um, and 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 it's and therefore it's kind of an an embodiment of fear. This discipline in that you, you yeah. this is what you're going to engage with. This is and yes, you're going to learn techniques. You're going to get strong. You're going to get mobile. You're going to get flexible. We're going to teach you all that. We're going to help you with that. And you and you, that that's that's almost automatic. You know, your body is is an amazing system system of systems. It's going to respond to these stimuli really well, these stresses, and it's going to become awesome athletically. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, but the thing you are really going to have to deal with is the psychology and the and your and your own mind and your own fear that's what will inhibit you um that's what will hold you back and therefore that's what will decide how far you go with it it's not going to be the physical element that that was that is going to get better so but the psychology that is much trickier to deal with so um so it's uh, in a way you know i've always viewed parkour as the um combatives of the movement world. See what I mean? There's, yeah, as you say, there's the okay. Tyrannosaur and the chicken, there's martial arts, and then there's the combative arts, right? Which is like, what actually works in a fight. <laughs> um, and that's a very small subset of the martial arts. Um, and parkour in a way is in the movement world and in the trade, physical movement world, the training world, the sports world, the fitness world, let's say, um, all those things. Parkour is the combative equivalent, is the equivalent of combatives. It's the, this is what, can you actually move? Can you actually do these things? Can you actually climb this building? Can you actually do this jump? Can you actually, you know, not not can you do it theoretically? Not can you simulate it in a soft environment? Um, not can you do it with pads on? But can you actually do it with with all the risk and all the reality of concrete and whatever? Can you actually do it with your body? Um, and that that is a very uh, real stress test of what you can do physically and mentally. And that's why I loved parkour. That's why I was like, this is amazing. Um, because I'd never been tested in that way, or I got used to being tested in that way in, in one environment. And when you get comfortable with the domain, that challenge goes away. Yeah, yeah, to a degree, yeah, it does. It's, um, like, it's, like, it's like getting over stage fright. You know, yeah. if you happen to have stage fright and you, and you do sort of like exposure therapy, so you get, go up on stage many times and you kind of get control of it or whatever, then you, it stops being that frightening. Yes. Because yes. That, that's just social fear. Yeah, right. 100%. Whereas I think, I think, you know, knowing if you if you fail to make this jump, you're going to die. I don't think that fear goes away. No, the visceral fear always kind of remains. Yeah, you never, you just learn to manage it. You just, you just become very good friends with it, and um, and you and you realize, as you did, you realize like, okay, I know it's coming now, so I just need to have a good relationship with it and and work with it. Um, and that is a that is that never goes away. That constant, that's always there, no matter how long you train. So, um. So that's really good in a way. And also, uh, the other reason I, I, that Parkour really attracted me a lot was that, um, you know, in the martial arts and the fighting arts, as I say, you know, you're always looking for the, for the least fake shit out there. The best one in the world, unless you're actually going to, like, get involved in bare knuckle boxing or, you know, um, or really ruthless fighting, unless, you, unless you're happy to go and actually fight people, you are, most of the time, it's very hard to, to actually find out, you know, what you've got in that way does it work yeah can, can i do this can i can i fight um whereas so you can't really test it you can but it's only in managed ways but as in, and, in and like, like war, it's the opposite tournaments yeah there's yeah, sports so, and tournaments try to fill that gap but to my mind they yeah. really don't yes because does it work in tournament it's not the same thing 100 percent. it's still a, it's uh, still a sport still a managed yeah. environment you still know you're not yeah. really going to get hurt you still got pads or whatever 
Whereas um, it, parkour is not it's not that way. So um, parkour <laughs> is it is like okay, this is this is it, and it's not like we we don't seek danger or anything like that in that way. But it and it's and I don't think it is dangerous. But um, but you are um, it's very real when you look down at the ground, even if you're only three feet off the ground. You know, when you look down at a jump and you think. If I if I miss this, it could hurt. I could I could end up on my butt and bruise myself, and you don't really want to do that. So you're you know that is very that's a very real thing. And then when of course if you go to to higher high, higher jumps or more complicated things, then it then it becomes then the risk can increase, but your skill obviously increases um, commensurately. So, um, but yeah, it is a it is a real test of your body and mind every single day, parkour. And for me, that reality uh, was was lacking, and that revealed things about you that about myself to me that I wasn't discovering through even, even through martial art. So, so I, I, right. that's why I fell in love with it. Okay. Now, according to the blurb of your book, ultimate parkour, and I, <laughs> I, I, I copied, I copied this off, off Tinternet and even that was wrong. Okay. Combining the core elements of running, jumping and climbing with the discipline of the martial artist, free running or parkour is more than simply an elegant non-competitive sport. It is an art form, a philosophy promoting fitness, imagination, community, spirit, and ethical, healthy living. Now, okay, parkour is obviously dangerous. The well, is it? Are is it? Ed- well, no, it's, it, okay. It is always going to be dangerous jumping off a building. Uh, where, uh, let, let, okay, let me finish my thought. Okay. Flying planes is dangerous, right? It is obviously dangerous, and therefore it is made extremely safe. Right. I'm currently learning to fly planes, and so I am getting an in-depth right, okay. look at, at, at all of the all of the safety stuff that goes around this obviously dangerous activity. Yes, okay. commercial aviation is incredibly safe because it's obviously dangerous. Yes, yes, okay, right, interesting. Yeah, because the danger because the danger is obvious, we take all sorts of reasonable precautions against it, and therefore it becomes quite safe. Right. Yes. Right. Whereas driving a car feels safe, and so people get killed all the time. Yes, because. They feel like they're sitting in their sitting sitting in their living room, and they've even got cup holders with a cup of coffee or something, and they're listening to a podcast. This podcast, perhaps, if you're driving right now, pay attention to the fucking road and not to two sword geeks geeking out. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, and and so bad things happen because it feels safe. Yes, right. So, so when I say parkour is obviously dangerous, there are things you do where anybody can look at that and go, if you get that wrong, something very bad is going to happen to you. Right. Yes. So the dangers are obvious. So how do you make it safe enough to be reasonable to, to practice? And I speak as a parent who cannot afford to <laughs> have, have my children grow up fatherless. Yeah. So um, yeah, and the reason I would I would take you through the word danger is just that it's just semantics, really. But we we it's the difference between risk and danger. So um, yeah. uh, parkour, the the consequences of failure in parkour, just as the consequences of failure in flying, are are more obvious to people you're right um but um what decides whether something is dangerous or not is not the severity of the consequences it's the severity of the consequences multiplied by the likelihood of the occurrence that Absolutely. that is how you come to the risk rating of something yeah. so so parkour i would say is obviously um obvious is obviously a risky pursuit and and some of the consequences of those failures are more are more are more obvious to people um but yeah it's no more there's no more danger in it than playing a game of rugby. Um, it's just the 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 the, the training required. It, it may, as you say, maybe less obvious. So, but um, this this just semantics, really. So, um, how do you make parkour safe? Well, parkour is the the first thing to realise is that parkour. The, what is the point of parkour? What, what what are we trying to do? And in, in the the 
the origin of parkour and the discipline of parkour is not about seeking um, high-risk activity. So the point of parkour is to um, make yourself as physically and as psychologically capable and effective um, in your environment as you can. So that's the point. Um, so you can train that without ever going high if you want. You never have to risk your mm-hmm. your your life at height in parkour if you if you don't want to. The only reason height training was included was because it was seen that to be as completely effective as possible in my environment, I must also be able to deal with the uh, incapa- the the incapacitating fear that could come about through going high. For some humans, right. not every human has a fear sure. of heights, but um, so that was an element of to be completely practical. I must also be capable of height. Um, so it's not about seeking. It's not about thrill seeking in that way. It's about that's just part of my training. If you want it, and a lot of people in parkour now they they they're not interested in in in, in having that that little element of it of the practical practic- being practically competent at height. So that all their training is at ground level, um, which is totally fine because parkour is just a movement skill. It's just about I mean, and it's basic in its movement in physical terms. It's just about learning how to move your body and how to master your body in in any environment. So can I climb over here? Can I jump this? Can I run this? And it was as much about physical characteristic development as it was about technical skill. Technical skill actually came later in parkour's development. Initially, it was about strength, endurance, um, you know, agility, uh, confidence. These things were far more important in the origin. And then later, the technical skills developed. So it's actually just a, it's just a way of, you know, a very old way of training the body to, to do what it is evolved to do, um, which is to move over terrain. That, that's what the body is, is that's the that's the the function of the human body um so uh all we're doing is training the evolutionary function of the human body and making it better um so if you train that gradually and you progressively work with where someone is at and you develop them it can be you know um as safe as any athletic practice i wouldn't say totally safe because it's Right. As safe or more safe than a lot of, for example, statistically, you are more likely to get injured playing rugby or football uh, than parkour. So, right. and, and, and but running itself has like a seventy percent annual injury rate. Yeah, you know, seventy percent of people who run seriously get injured every year, yeah. which is incredibly high. Yeah, yeah, um, I, think it, I think it's actually and, high. And, and and horse riding is fatal. Yes, many, <laughs> it's, many, like, it's yes. more it's, it's more dangerous than motorbikes. Yeah, yeah, it's many like, many insane. many many injuries, many um, deaths. Yes. But, but actually, what well, this reminds me of, it. I, I go uh, indoor climbing quite regularly because it's, it's yep. local, it's available, a couple of friends of mine do it, so we go quite regularly and it's great fun. And one of the things I get out of it is I am actually scared of heights. And so climbing up a wall, I can actually get into practically panic attack territory, mm-hmm. right? When I'm only like you know, maybe two meters above a padded surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Which is great, because yep. I can I can get I can get to that yeah, but I can get to that edge of terror, and then have to kind of breathe through it and figure out and complete yes. the route or not complete the route or make make a sensible choice and then get down safely, right? And it's it's a really ha- it's really handy being scared of heights because you can you can generate that yep that Very fear easy. response quite easily exactly yeah, absolutely um, which which makes it easy to generate so it's easy to train against so when fear happens in other contexts you have the experience of okay this feels like panic get rid of it get get it under control that kind of thing yes um and so having having the the pads doesn't 
actually make any difference in the back of your head. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, the height is real. The pads, who, who knows? Yes, yeah. And you can still get hurt um, doing that. You can still roll, you know, badly roll yeah, an ankle. And, and it, yeah. actually, and that's where I was going next because a, a, a little while ago, um, a woman came off the wall badly and got a complex fracture of her ankle, mm, right? Yeah. Which shouldn't have happened from where, where she was. It was just one of those freak things. Yeah. And there was like medics coming in and ambulance and all that sort of thing. And me and my, my friends who were climbing, we got, for the rest of that day, we were super cautious. It was like, we were just like, no, 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 let's not try that route over there because we might fall off and they'll need another ambulance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's normal. But, but it's, as you say, yeah. it's very, it's very, un, it's very unusual. Um, but it can yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you fell in love with parkour, but there wasn't much parkour happening in Japan at the time. There was no parkour in Japan. Okay, so how did you get started? No parkour anywhere, really. <laughs> right, so, yeah, because this is like 2001, right? Yeah. Yeah, so how did how did you actually start parkour? So, I, like I said, I saw, you know, I, I saw stuff um, when I was in Japan, saw the movie, um, and then and then I saw the, pretty soon after, I think 2001, I think the BBC showed, did an ident, uh, a little, ad, you know, BBC ad or whatever they called them, ident, um, with, um, with David, another one of the founding guys of, of a guy running across a load of roofs in London. Um, and I kind of put the two together and were like, this, this kind of the same, this is the same thing. Um, and, um, and, and looked into it and did some research and found out, um, who those guys were, the founders in France, the, the, the Yamakasi, the, Training who created it, um, and there were a handful of guys in the UK, three, four guys in the UK who were practicing at the time, and I was living in Japan. So I, I managed to get in contact through there was a French speaking forum called parkour.net, which was the only way that people could communicate in parkour sort of online back then. This was obviously before mm-hmm. YouTube and all that sort of stuff. So, um, got onto the forum, you know, met some people there, it was mainly in French, but my French is okay. So I met, met some people there, and then, um, and then connected with the UK crowd through that um and so when i came back from japan in the uh in the summer i would come back to england in the summer because i was a university lecturer and summers in japan very hot so i'd come back here um and uh when i came back to london in the summer i i was able to find the uk guys start training with them and it's through them that i managed to access the french um guys in france uh went over to france to start training with them so and then i would go back to japan train in japan with with two friends out there who were also into it um, at the same time as me. So we started training in Japan. We'd come back training and then I'd come back and train in, in, in the UK in, in the summer holidays. Um, did that for the first sort of two years, I guess. And then 2004, maybe the end of 2004, I came back to the UK permanently. Um, and so was able to train much more regularly with the with the French guys and, and all that back here. So it was, it was a pretty haphazard intro. And you've got to remember back then there was no teaching there was no classes, nothing like that existed. It was not an organized thing. There were maybe 50 people in the entire world that did it or knew about it. Um, so so how did you train? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, so most training back in the day in parkour, unless you could access the founders in person and train with them, which I was, I was lucky enough to do very early on. But um, most of the training was a, a, a really organic kind of people would upload videos and you would have to sort of um you know uh try and try and download them and watch them and it would take ages because yeah know, so it was crap bad then um but you'd watch these grainy videos of guys in france training um doing stuff and then you'd basically mimic it you'd go out and model those movements and try and copy what they were doing and and try and replicate them in your environment um and 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 just apply the concept but it 
It was very rough. There was no information, no teaching, no nothing written down, um, no websites, no classes. So it was very, very uh, organic and rough. Um, so, so in what sense are these people the founders? What did they actually found? If so they were not, the ones. They don't have like a teaching method or a body of technique or anything like. That. What did they actually create? So they started training in the early '90s as a group of young mm-hmm. friends, sort of you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen-year-olds. Um, uh, with with other people around them, family and friends, these two families, the Hanotra family, the Bell family, um, and other people around. And they started training and, and they started, well, they, they were just using the environment. They were exploring the environment because they were young kids that were playing. They had influences from uh, from athletics, from gymnastics, from martial arts, from the method naturelle, from, from, which is an old French method of movement. Um, they had influences like that from their parents and their families and tribal cultures, some of the the Hanotra family from New Caledonia, um, this sort of ethics from there. And this basically created a melting pot in the suburbs of Paris, whereby these kids who, who were sort of, you know, the, the banlieue, the, the, the suburbs where they were sort of, um, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of seen as, as lower class and, you know, the rest of Paris doesn't have anything to do with them. They, um, they use their environment to explore their, their bodies and minds. And, and it kind of just went from play to an actual discipline of practice um, and actually, this idea of how, what can we do? How strong can we be? How how effective and competent can we be? Can we do this? Like a, a rites of passage type thing, you know, sort of t- testing themselves every day. And from that arose technique. Um, and from that arose concepts and principles and and they were they were they were never written down, no, but they were they were understood by them. So so other people would therefore one by one would slowly come over and start and start wanting to learn. Not many stayed with them, um, and it was a very small thing uh, for the uh, when I by the time I'd founded it, it was as I say maybe fifty, a hundred people in the world who knew about it. A couple of people in different countries, but most people in France, um, and and it was very organic. It was just a very much a the only way you could learn was to go out find one of those people train with them, try and keep up with them. They wouldn't teach you. They wouldn't really teach you. They would just say, well, just try and do what I do. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, okay. it was pretty rough and ready. So we were the ones that created the teaching around it. We, we, we had, a, I was at a university lecture. I taught in martial arts. Um, Forrest, one of the other founders with me, one of the French guys, he, um, he had a background. He was a, a military PT instructor um, okay. and, a, and a high-level athlete. Um, so we were the ones that created the teaching structure around it. We ran the first sort of classes, I guess. Um, uh, in, and that, So those happened in the UK, the first publicly accessible classes where you could actually just go and learn from a guy who would teach you, actually teach you. Um, right. uh, so the teaching came from that. Um, but when I learned, there was none of that. So my learning in, in Japan, especially when I was in Japan, when I was in the UK, I was surrounded by other people that were doing it and had been doing it about as long as I had or slightly longer. And I had access to the French guys, so I could learn a lot very quickly. Um, but when I was back in Japan, it was didn't really know what we were doing so we would just go out and do do our best but um uh, and and now i look back i don't train like that now but at the time it was very um it was very it was very simplistic training it was literally find a find a location create a pick a line of movement through this location and sometimes they'd be up to a kilometer long um and go just run and try and overcome every obstacle in your path on that way whether it involved climbing dropping swinging whatever bolting just go try and do the circ do the circuit come back and then do it again make it better so it was super basic but very effective way to get fit and strong and and agile (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but that's not how you train now so how do you train now no now we we i guess we're much more sophisticated in it and um you know we uh, are much more scientific about it and um but but a lot of that that oldest those older principles we keep 
we keep within it. So we still try and the basic training is in a way is still similar that we take people, we expose them to an environment. Um, we first of all ask them to, to deal with that environment, to overcome it. Like here's your task. It's, it's very much what we call task oriented training, which is rather than sort of just training arbitrary random movements. It's a case of the task is get from here to here, get from here to up there, um, you know, get across this or whatever, carry this over there. Um, and, and then we see how they solve that. Um, so first we let people engage with the obstacles themselves with no, no middleman, just them and the obstacle, how they deal with it, how their body wants to deal with it, how their psychology wants to deal with it. And then we, the coaching element is then a question of, okay, how can we improve what you did? What, what, what was hard about that? What was easy about it? How can it be more efficient? How can it be quicker? How can it be safer for you? Um, and then we will help them do that with the, all the knowledge and, of biomechanics and training and movement and kinetics and dynamics or whatever. Um, uh, but then effectively we're trying to just help them become as good as they can be at dealing with their environment. So it's not necessarily about them just learning, copying techniques. Um, this is not a good way to, to learn movement. It's much better to have what's called a constraints-led approach, which is where you um, give them constraints and parameters, such as mm -hmm. the task is this, the environment is this, and the limitations on it are this. Um, go and let them solve the problem. That is a better way to create movement. That's how human movement evolved before there was any sort of thing mm -hmm. as training any such thing as training um, in our species. And those movies were, were, were probably better, way better than we are now in terms of practical, capable movement. So, um, oh, yeah, so you don't teach a do baby it. to walk. Exactly. They get it through you modeling. Don't. They get it through the constraints of, I need, I want oh, to be able to stand up and walk. Yeah. And, and between here and there, there's nothing for me to hang on to. So I have to do it by balancing, not by holding yes. on to things. And, you know, and gravity will tell them when they get it wrong. Exactly. So I, I used I used to say to when my daughters were learning to walk, I would tell them, "Mr. Gravity is your best friend because he will never he will never lie to you." Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. This is um that's a core and that's a core thing in parkour and and in combative training as well. And why sparring is so good in a way is because that it you want honest feedback. You want honest, right, exactly. accurate, immediate feedback. The best way to learn something and, is immediate, accurate feedback. Um, and that's why when somebody swings a sword at me in a drill. And they're not actually aiming to hit me. That's why it pisses me off. Yeah, it's useless. It's not just bad training. It's just it's offensive because they're lying to me. Because yeah. if my technique works against that, it will not necessarily work against somebody who's actually trying to hit me. Yeah. And so they are stealing my safety later on. Yeah, and just right. wait and stealing your time. It's just it's just a waste of your time. And then yeah, yeah. So hundred percent. Much better just. To, I'd much rather just get punted in the face. And it will happen yeah, once, that, and, then, and then you <laughs> won't have it again. Yeah, yeah so. exactly. Then you figure out, oh, no, I need to actually get that sword out of my way. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so how did you go from like jumping off buildings and climbing trees and stuff to having an international organization of instructors? There's quite a there is path from one to the other. <laughs> it's a, and it's a, it's a long story, but um, uh, I mean, effectively, again, we didn't pl I didn't plan for this to happen. So <laughs> I came back from Japan and I was, you know, as soon as I came back from Japan, I was doing, I, I, um, uh, I was working in the business in a strategy consultancy for a bit and, um, and editing a, a business magazine as well. So th those things I was doing just, just to keep me alive in London when I came back. Um, but I was mainly interested in training parkour um, and, some of the French guys moved to London at the same time, um, who I knew. So they moved over to, 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 to train here and to, and to sort of just bring their lives here. And we ended up training all day, every day, pretty much. So, so parkour just became, it just gradually, actually pretty rapidly took over my everyday. And then we were, we, we were asked to, um, 
well, we started teaching one class. We started teaching, me and Forrest started teaching a class and, and that was very popular because we kind of thought we, we were in this state of mind where we were like, well, if this is going to, if this art is going to grow and if it's going to survive, if other people are going to study it, we, we need to make it accessible. You know, but yeah. other people have to learn it. Um, other, otherwise, it will survive one generation, two generations, and die out. So we, we, you know, we've got to make it accessible, and we had the skills to do that. So we started teaching a class. That class was super popular, and, and pretty quickly, the UK governments got involved. City of Westminster got involved, and were like, "Wow, this this looks awesome!" And some very forward-thinking people there were sort of like, "Can you teach this to schools? Could you teach this to kids in disadvantaged areas?" And we said, yeah, probably. So, so we adapted the class and the teaching to that. Um, and it, that, it kind of grew from that. At the same time, obviously, we were, that's the teaching wing. At the same time, we were also, obviously, because we were the early practitioners of parkour, the media had jumped on it. 1999, Nike did the first advert. Um, so the media had jumped on it as this spectacle thing. So we were already doing a lot of stuff in the media. We were already doing movies and stunt work and, and things like that. Okay. So, um, and being paid for that. So that was already becoming like a profession we were sort of making. And then add that to the teaching, um, which was exceedingly cheap at the time to join the classes, but it was still making some money. And we suddenly realized like one day, literally just woke up and we're like, you know what? This is this is our career. This is actually what we do for a living. We get paid to do it and that's it. So um, yeah. so it was then it was a case of, well, in that case, you know, let's, let's – um, to try and do it properly and grow it so we created uh, the company and um to house the the vehicle for teaching and um and and create the academy and it, and it went from there and it just sort of because we were the first ones teaching um we were immediately dragged around the world to teach more people um yeah. and so we ended up yeah spending our lives traveling and teaching and then we created um standards for for coaches or education coach education teacher education so that people could learn how to teach other people if that if when they got experienced enough um and it, and it kind of yeah just expanded from there so it was it was crest of a wave thing i suppose in that parkour was growing in popularity just about you know the the, the media had got hold of it it was starting to appear in tv and in movies and stunts and stuff and i remember in a bond film yeah Casino Royale, right? yeah that's right yeah six maybe five six so yeah, and we were just we were just the ones who sort of were at that were training hard when that when that wave crested and and because we had the skills to teach it and to explain it, I suppose, and to understand it in that way to a wider audience. A lot of the original French practitioners, they were not interested in in teaching. They were not interested in in, in spreading it to other people. A lot a lot of them just, they just did it for their own training and they which is totally sure. cool. They weren't interested in spreading it. Um they they didn't like the the media, the establishment in that way. They were quite reclusive, um, and 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 it, and, uh, and 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 it just didn't really go anywhere in France as a result. So it took off in the UK much bigger than it took off in France, um, huh. be- because it was just organised better here, probably, and the authorities here were more open minded to it, which is which is really cool. That is kind of cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of sort of parallels to historical swordsmanship. The thing is. Swords have been in movies since forever, and they're always, always, always wrong. Yeah, I mean, not always, but almost invariably, they're just, they're just it's just a horror show. Yeah, right. It's a show. I, I often shut my eyes during the sword fights because yes. I just can't bear to see it. Um, but, but I guess because we're using weapons, like governments and what and whatnot, are not the slightest bit interested in supporting mm. historical martial arts in any way. Sadly, whereas whereas you have a you have a more um, I guess media friendly 
thing where you you know you're you're not hitting anybody, you're not hurting anybody except occasionally yourselves. I mean that you, I absolutely I've, I've trained with you. I know from experience that you're very safe, very sensible, very uh, progressive approach to how you train. Mm. This is not a criticism of you at all. But YouTube is entirely filled. Mostly, <laughs> most of YouTube is parkour epic fails where people hurt themselves in the most appalling ways doing very stupid things. Yeah, 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 sadly. <laughs> yeah. So how, how, do you, how, how do you reconcile that? I mean, are they not doing real parkour or are they just doing it badly? Or does everyone have those experiences, just not everyone is um, dumb enough to video it and put it on YouTube? Or No, I mean, it's a, it's a combination of lots of things. Obviously, parkour spread very rapidly and, and it spread mm-hmm. very quickly because of the internet beyond, beyond its capacity to teach a community right so yeah um people watch on the internet and just go and copy it and most of the original people that did that were very serious but then you get then as it spread and became like a spectacle thing then you got kids just sort of and and adults just going i want to be able to do that and just going out and immediately trying to copy it without understanding the training so yes most of those people the majority of them uh and those videos and things you know, you'd look at them and say, well, they're, they're not really training parkour. They, they don't really know what they're doing. They haven't approached it progressively or gradually as was done originally. They're not strong enough to do this, they're, they're, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that would be the same as, you know, uh, as, as as blaming professional racing drivers for all car crashes. It's like, yeah. there are a lot of idiots who drive. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, that doesn't mean the professionals don't do what they do really well and can't teach you how to do what they do really well. Um, so, although, uh, although professional race car drivers do get killed quite often. Although they, they, they yeah, they get dangerous <laughs> sport. So, um, but it's, it's about, yeah, it's about progressive training and, and in that way. And most of those people and that, you know, they, they, uh, it's very accessible. You can go out and start parkour anywhere, but you, you, um, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you don't take it gradually and progressively, then you can make mistakes. So, um, but the same, same in any athletic discipline, I suppose, skiing or, you know, whatever you, you can, sure. you can have loads of bales, you can have loads of fails and, and, the, and the bales uh, look worse <laughs> in parkour because there's no snow. But um, a lot of those bell videos, that, they don't, uh, interestingly, there's not a lot of serious, serious injuries that come out of them. Most of the time you'll see the kid right. run around and get up, you know, or, or yeah. get, you know, most of the time, there's not very serious injuries. Serious injuries in parkour are incredibly rare. Um, and most of the time, it's minor injuries, sprains and strains and bruises that you get from sure. any athletic discipline. So, yeah, yeah, it's not a, it's not that much of a problem there. So, um, no, teaching-wise, we've never had an issue with that. But there was a huge education piece in that the government were, were supportive here, but not, you know, not everyone, not the schools. And it took us many years to convince the the establishment and the education authorities and the fitness authorities that this is just a movement practice you know because they and it's, it's parkour's fault in a way because they'd seen all the movie stuff and the jumps and the spectacles yeah. that the movie like so they go where's that you'd be like no it, no it's just is it movement. really is it really a good idea to train underprivileged kids how to climb up buildings and run along cranes and yeah, this, Ooh, yeah potential this is, for mischief here. Yeah, those are the kind of questions we'd yeah. get. Yeah, um, yeah, and you kind of have to go. Well, you know, it's that, that's kind of a that's you, that's a strange view, and the reality is it that's not how it works. Yeah. And the, the Met Police, when when we ran sessions in in Westminster in two thousand and five for, for disadvantaged kids, um, the Met Police said that crime went down in those groups by sixty nine percent. So clearly learning a discipline and a transformative practice like parkour, which takes skill and persistence and commitment, you're not going to do that to become a thief. (laughs) Um, People don't do that. That's just not how thieves operate. No, 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 Um, exactly. People that are studying a discipline are going to go down a good path. 
Right, and, like, and people, people who practice horsemanship are much less likely to murder somebody with a sword, I yeah. think, than people who don't practice horsemanship. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so it's um, just a perception thing. So we had to retrain people's perception around risk. We had to go through the whole risk-danger discussion with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. About the, the health and safety executive, you know, the most senior professor of risk in, in the UK, David Ball, is, is a was a big advocate of ours early on and a, and a really nice guy. Um uh, you know, and so we, it, all those people do support us um, and do engage us, and what they because they understand they're they're they un, they're, they're, they're educated enough to understand risk and danger and all this sort of stuff, and look at the statistics and actually make rational statistical de- decisions Decision. about these things, um, yeah. rather than you know the irrational response, which most people's fears are are irrational, right? And most people's fears are are, are incorrect. Mm. The things that most people are I, afraid about are, are are incorrect. So. Well, that that's certainly true. I mean, people are, are frightened of things that are very unlikely. People are much more frightened of home invasions than they are of car crashes. Yes. Or yeah. or of or of you know, you know, flying. Or, they, or flying, or they or they make like lifestyle decisions that lead to them getting heart disease or cancer or whatever. But they weren't frightened of heart disease or cancer. They were frightened of I don't know dogs. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, the fear has a lot of fear is irrational, but. I don't think it's irrational to be afraid of heights because heights can kill you. If you fall off a high building, you could die. Falling can kill you. Um, yes. So yeah. So the um, the height can't kill you. The, the fear of falling is is embedded in the human. So one of the only two fears that are that are uh, you're born with that are hardwired into your brain. Um, you can't get What's over the other one. Fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. So the start of reflex. Okay. So okay. they um they those are you're born with those. You can't get rid of them. They're there for a very good reason. So they're part of the sort of reflex. The moral reflex is the fear of falling, and that's babies were born with that. If you take a take a baby out of the womb and hold it up and drop it, it will immediately spread its hands. No! And it, it immediately don't knows. Do that. Um, they, they, they they do test things like that, but um, don't drop it onto the floor. They just they just let go of it slightly, and then catch it again, and you'll see it automatically does this, yeah. this stuff. So it knows that falling is bad. So it's hardwired to that already. Um, loud noise is the same. Every other fear you learn. So the fear of heights is a learned fear. It's not something you're born with. Um, and uh, you can over any learned fear, you can unlearn or you can overwrite, sure. let's say. Yeah. So, um, but the fear of falling is hardwired, but the fear of falling is not the fear of heights. So, because um, the fear of falling is what keeps you standing up. <laughs> um, uh, so, fear of heights is is is, is different, um, and um, it's, you know, it's, it's there's no. If you're competent with your movement and you're and you're and you're and you're comfortable and you move, it's the same as moving. It's just a different environment to move through. So there are yeah. there are different risks at height. The risks are different from moving through a street in a city, for example. Um, so yeah. you know, but again, like I say, height training in parkour is only a very small subset of of, um, of parkour. Most parkour. Is not yeah, and, and I'm not meaning to focus on height. It's just it, there's a a sort of thought experiment I do with my students sometimes, where you know, if you you get them to like walk along a bench and it's absolutely fine. Everyone could do it. We we have, we sometimes actually fence standing on these narrow kind of gym benches, which are about I don't know mm-hmm. about twenty centimeters wide, and you can do fencing on that because it, it just it just changes the environment a bit, and you have to think about where you're putting your feet in, right? And then no one has any trouble with it, mm. right? But if you were to suspend that exact same bench across a pit full of crocodiles, <laughs> <laughs> right? No one would do it. Right. Although the actual risk of coming off the bench is the same, yeah, because the consequences are so different, yeah, the it, it doesn't seem like it's worth doing. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's that's what's known as perception action coupling movement. 
in that your your actions are always driven by your perception of of what that action will bring about and then the action and once you do the action or an action it then changes the perception further so it's a cycle of perception and action yeah that, that all movement is governed by that yeah um okay so when i mentioned that i was going to be interviewing you some of my students um and they know I'm a massive freak about joint care routines and I do my forearm massages and knee massages and all that kind of stuff, stretching, what have you. Um, they immediately wanted to know about your joint care routine because jumping onto concrete isn't generally recommended for keeping your knees safe and healthy. So what do you do to keep your joints working properly? Um, yeah, so parkour, I guess a, a number of things it's shown us. One thing it's shown us is that humans are incredibly good at dealing with and dispersing impact through the body if they move well. Um, yeah. uh, so we're much better at dealing with impact than we think and impact is actually really healthy for the body in terms of bone density and stuff but yeah it's got to be relative to your strength capacity so your strength has to be able to absorb that impact and or disperse it allow for dispersal for it. so the strength of your muscles and your connective tissue has to be well trained but that takes time to condition that so the first step is you can't rush in parkour in this sort of movement training you, ha- you must always progress within the capacity of your strength in a way um, and build the strength before you you know, build the impact. So, um, so strength, a lot of strength work, a lot of mobility and flexibility work, as you say, um, and a lot of uh, technical training in terms of how to land, how to absorb, how best to absorb impact, um, and training the nervous system to anticipate that and deal with it very well um, keeps your joints safe and healthy and strong, and, and makes them stronger. So, but it's a question of yeah, developing this. You know, we sometimes call it um, kind of bulletproofing the body and and training the body to, to take forces in a, in a non-linear fashion or, or multi-linear, multi-directional fashion, which is what the body's designed to do. Whereas most fitness training over the last 20, 30 years um, went down a very linear pattern of training, very sagittal plane yeah. dominant. So it was very good at making you develop force in one line, mainly because fitness training was tied to sports when they were running and, and or maybe moving left or jinking left and right and that was it. Um, so there's not really any truly multi-directional movement going on. Um, and that actually predisposed that makes you more likely to be injured when the stress is applied uh, to the joint in a way that it's not ready for or hasn't trained for so our training is about developing a, a multi-directional ability to deal with force and that's through non lots of non-linear mobility training tools but the reality is the the agility required to train in parkour and to move through your environment does all that for you um, as long as you do it in a progressive scale progressive way it will build a multi-directional non-linear resilience within the body that can then absorb impact from lots of different angles um, and that protects your, your it's more likely to protect your joints so um so yeah it's about developing an intelligent body for movement um and and, and all the right capacities the right strength the right endurance um the right mobility the right flexibility um yeah so it's 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 just a same as learning to fight it's a there's a very complex art within that um but when you understand it, it becomes it goes back to just being it's just it's just trained like like Bruce Bruce Lee said, you know, punch is the punch when you begin and then when you when you get more into the art, a punch is no longer a punch. And then when you're a master, a punch is again just a punch. It's kind of the same, like so um uh it's just it's just training, it's just practice, you know. But yeah, there's no reason your joints you it should make your joints stronger and healthier if you're training well. So uh, just for the sake of people listening who may not be familiar with these things. What would be a good example of an exercise that generates non-linear strength? So any, so the way you've got to think of the body is 
uh, is first of all as a holistic system, but secondly, um, as a system of systems. But secondly, as as so what is known as a biotensegrity model. So the body is uh, right. ignore the fitness definition, the old fitness definition of the body being a, a mechanical structure of joints and levers. This is true on a very right. simplistic level, but the actual, the reality is the body is a biotensegrity model. So it's a, it's it, which means it's a architecturally speaking, it's held together by by tension and compression. Right, so it's held together by yeah. the compression uh, expressed in certain ways and tension expressed in certain ways by connective tissue and the bones, which are uh, are you know close to each other but don't contact each other. They're held in place by tension. So it is a, that that is the definition of a tensegrity model. The body is just bio tensegrity in that it is, and this is all organic things are like this, right? So they the, the a bio tensegrity model responds best. Um, to pressures from all sides and different and diff- different angles um, yeah. a, a lot of the time, and it will always return to its normal shape once you've applied pressure. It will bounce back. So um, th- once you understand the body is that, then you understand that the best way to develop strength is to apply forces in non-linear ways. So to apply forces in holistic ways. So for example, torque and twisting motions are this is this is the best way to generate force which is why punching is always a twisting motion and all that these are the best ways to generate force and therefore are the ways you should be receiving force in order to make that chain of movement stronger so for example rather than just doing squat basic squat pattern up and down uh, you yeah. know a normal air squat that's fine but it's very simple for the body like why not do it as a spiral so what we call spiral squats or non-linear squats or irregular squats are sometimes called so if you squat but spiraling at the same time and then come back to standing you will realize that the forces going through your body and your knees and ankle and hips are very different it's much harder um but you re- that's more likely to happen in movement those are, that's the, those are the positions your body's going to be in in movement yeah so you need to prepare the body for that. You need to strengthen it. So it's kind of that simple. Find out what 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 stress is is gonna the, is the body going to endure in movement, and then apply force in those ways, you know, but in a gradual, progressive way. Okay, so well, for, for my listeners, my readers who are familiar with my material, we're talking about twisting squats. Yeah. Where let, let, let me just demonstrate it for Dan, so that we make sure we're talking about the same thing. Twisting squat is where you go all the way down. You can't see it. Like my feet are sort of at right angles and around the other way. So that sort of thing, rather yes. than simply straight up and down. Yeah. Okay. So twisting squats for the win. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that would exactly. be an example of a non-linear motion as opposed to a regular squat, which is just straight up and down. Yes, and there's hundreds, okay. hundreds of variations of that, and they're all they're all really yeah. useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really cool. Okay. Excellent. And um, so. Do you have any sort of like additional practices like ice baths or massage or anything like that that keeps the joints working properly? Not, not really. No, I mean, uh, you know, okay. so, so tissue quality in terms of flexible, some sort of myofascial release and that sort of stuff. Yes, sometimes um, after a really hard training session, maybe or before a session, maybe. But um, and some flexibility elements. I think stretching and flexibility is really healthy. Um, but uh, what I, my, my philosophy has always been that you know, like animals which don't stretch and don't have tissue sort of quality maintenance um, methods. And yet they're, they're healthy, their whole lives are moving really well. That, that if you, if your training and your lifestyle is good, you shouldn't need to have, you know, these things like regular massages and regular this and regular treatments and stuff, because the body is, is a, is a self-organizing system. And if it's treated well with the right stresses and given the right food, and the right sleep, et cetera, um, it shouldn't require those kind of external maintenance things 
because the body is is designed to do not mm. to need that. So um, so I th- it, and it doesn't. I'm not saying that the, those things are bad. You might need them if you're putting the body through unnatural stresses, which a lot of humans do in the modern world, um, and have evolved bad habits and bad patterns and bad postures. You might need them to correct that stuff. But if you if you if you're able to not develop those bad postures and bad habits, and you, and you keep moving all the time. Um, and you and you live fairly healthily. You shouldn't require them. This is my philosophy. So I I don't mm-hmm. really and I don't really require them. I don't really need massage. Doesn't really do a lot for me. Um, I I do stretch and do flexibility work, but I don't need really need to do it um, unless I've had a really hard session and I'm trying to sort of in some way alleviate the DOMS or whatever. But you don't really know if you can do that <laughs> scientifically. So. Um, you know, some tissue working out here and there, but I don't really need it, Alle- and, I, and I'm happy about that. So, <laughs> Alle- alleviate the DOMS. What's that? DOMS are delayed onset muscle soreness. So basically, it's, ah, it's, right. it's the okay. fitness term for when you do exercise and the next day you're sore. That's called DOMS. Okay. But no one scientifically, right. no one really knows biologically what that is, what causes it. Okay, and no one really knows if you can mitigate it. So, um, it's a bit weird. I, mean, I, I would say that you know, if people are working six, eight hours a day with a computer and a mouse and stuff, they absolutely do need remedial Yeah, and that's training. exactly and that, that. And that's, that's basically what, what most of my wrist and forearm conditioning stuff is for, is so that I can write sure. books. Yeah, yeah. Right? And th- that's curative, um, as you say. That's, that's remedial. That's, that's, they, they, yes. They've got a condition that is unnatural for the human body, and they therefore must take medicine, which is or, joint work and all I, that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, 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 I look at it differently. It's like, I look at it more like it's an extreme sport, Right, like running ultra marathons, you're basically getting your little forearm <laughs> yes. to run ultra marathons all day. Yeah, yeah. And as any anyone who takes anything to an extreme does, you need remedial work to kind of recover yeah. from that extreme. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, like you know, rapier lunges, right? They are totally natural. There's nothing. There's nothing unnatural about them. But it's not natural to do several hundred of them on one side a day. Yes, and then, yeah, that's for sure. I, I, yeah. Right, so we're doing we're doing the same limited motion over and over. So a lot of swordsmanship doesn't have a complete range of motion because you don't want to be doing certain motions when you're fighting, and so it's it's yeah. a restricted range of the possible motions your body should be doing. So to my mind, because my core art has a restricted range of motion my general training has to include all the other ranges of motion that are missing in my art so my body gets all of these things. So, yes. I mean, for example, that quadrupedal stuff we were doing at your seminar, um, I do that sort of stuff in my regular training because, you know, that's like hands and feet on the ground, moving sideways, moving forwards, playing around with it, all that sort of stuff because you would absolutely never do that in a sword fight. Mm, yes. Right? But your body needs to move in all these different ways. Yeah. So I, I, I include all of that sort of stuff specifically because it's missing from my core movement practice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good way to look at it in terms of like the, the the modern lifestyle, the modern urban lifestyle is, is, um, is an unusual and an unnatural stressor on the human body. And therefore you may have to, you may have to provide balancing things like stretching, like et cetera, et cetera, because, because people are having postural problems that they don't, they shouldn't have. But, and there is, you know, if you go back to trot when we were more, tribal cultures or uh, hunter-gatherer or whatever, um, but pre-industrial, let's say, and the blue zones in, in the world are still like this. Um, those people don't train. They don't stretch. They don't do tissue massage. They don't do any – they don't go to the gym. They don't do any of that stuff, but they move well and they're fit and healthy their whole lives and then they die and that's it. They don't get sick or whatever. So th- that's how a human that's – that's what a human has evolved to be. 
um, the modern industrial lifestyle that we live, the urban lifestyle that we live, is not uh, in tune with your evolutionary um, way of being. So it, it is like a not a sickness, but it is a it is a it is a problem. It is an extreme stress, like you say, and that extreme stress must be mitigated if if you've got to that stage. So my uh, my hope is that, and, and what we try and do with parkour, especially with young people, is that we try and get them before they've gone down that path and say, look, if you start moving now in this very organic, very natural, very holistic way and keep moving like this your whole life, you will never need that stuff. And you will end up being fit and healthy for the whole of your life. Um, and you will live a long, long life. Um, that's the hope in that some way we can sort of battle against the, the decay of the human form that is happening through urbanization. I have an example for you, right? When in 2015, I lived in Italy for three months with my wife and two, at that time, quite young children. And I didn't do any training at all, right? Just none. I was basically on holiday for three months. It was awesome, right? But every day we would go on walks and the children, when we would find playgrounds, would go and play and climb on the climbing frames and swing around and around. And I would join them. And this is not common practice in Italy. I think in most cases I was the only adult on on the uh, climbing frames and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was just like, you know, doing all the stuff the kids were doing. And it was absolutely exhausting. Yes, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. But I did not, I think I may have done five push-ups the entire time I was away. Yeah. Right. Came back and led my first class and I was fitter than when I left. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it was great. I mean, if you can keep up with a six-year-old on a climbing frame, I don't think you need to worry too much about. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And those six-year-olds, you know, they're, they're doing, that's where parkour came from. They're doing a, a, the nascent version of parkour. So, yeah, absolutely right. If they just keep doing that, they will, they will stay fit and healthy and strong. Um, but yeah. most, that's the problem is most people don't we don't keep doing that right we stop doing that so because it's not cool like my, my kids are teenagers now and they just they're not going to go play on a climbing frame that's for children yeah and and their weird father but, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, uh, so how, how do you include play in your training uh, I mean, play, like I say, parkour is, is kind of, it comes from play in a way anyway. So, so it's built in. It's built in. I mean, parkour, the, the, the concepts of parkour are really the, the central concepts are exploration of your environment, um, discovery and looking for challenges and, and, uh, and then overcoming those challenges and adapting to those challenges. That's, that's the process really. So parkour is a very playful, explorative um, discipline in and of itself. And it's just, it's just, you know, it's fun for the human body to move in that way. That's, that's why kids like doing that. That's why so much of their play is locomotive play and physical play. Um, and because it feeds the body. So the brain and body like it, feel good, all the energy, the, the chemicals, the hormones, the endorphins that run through you, all that stuff feels good. So um, it feels fun to do it. So play, play, play is kind of built into parkour. It doesn't mean we don't also have a lot of hard work in parkour. It doesn't mean that oh, parkour sure. doesn't involve lots of training and, and in terms of the disciplined elements of skill acquisition um but but it but the, the core of parkour is is playfully exploring your environment um and learning to overcome create and overcome challenges so it's very in, in that way has the creative elements as well so um yeah it's 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 right in there it's tied in there um and we we we, we always encourage people to, to keep that and to that's why people get into parkour that's why they like it at the start so part of our training methodologies and our education pieces are about keeping that don't lose that because if mm. you lose that, you kind of lose the point why you got into it in the first place. So it must always be fun for you. You must always have an element of play, yeah. Okay. Um, now, okay, in the historical martial arts community, certification of instructors is this massive um, 
Yeah, just don't go there, basically, because it requires a curriculum that people agree on and a method of teaching that people agree on. Yeah. And, and because historical martial arts has kind of grown organically from a bunch of isolated weirdos like me who are studying specific historical texts and coming at that with various fencing or martial arts backgrounds or no background at all or whatever. And so we have lots and lots of different interpretations of the same texts and we have lots and lots of different ways of training and we have lots and lots of different kind of club cultures and school cultures and what have you, right? There is no sort of generally accepted, this is what historical martial arts really is and this is how it should be done, right? Yep. Which I think is actually a good thing. It's a strength because yes. we have this extreme diversity of approaches and so we can find out what works and what doesn't. And eventually, maybe in 50 years' time, there'll be a more of a consensus as to how things should be done, but there's no rush to get there, right? But it will be super useful to be able to certify instructors for like insurance purposes and mm. for just making sure that the students are being properly looked after by the instructor because they know how to run a safe class and they know how to you know, look after their students' best interests and they're being explicitly trained to do that. That would be great. I do it in my school and it's fine and it works. In that, but because we don't have a common curriculum, like internationally speaking, we don't have a common curriculum, so we don't have a way of certifying instructors. Mm. But you do. Uh, well, we don't have a common curriculum. Ah, okay. So you have instructor certification without a common curriculum. Tell me more. Yeah, because um, they're completely separate things, right? So the so for us, the way we look at our coach education system and our, and our global certifications, they're about coach education. So they are about taking practitioners um, and and teaching them how to teach. So it's about learning okay. how to become a coach, how to become a teacher, coaching science, which is a huge field of study in itself psycholinguistics social yeah. linguistics all this stuff so um the uh, you know coaching is its own art so what we're doing is we're taking parkour practitioners and we, we there is there is a generally as there is in in what you what you do and what you teach there is a generally accepted like this is basically what you learn you know so these are the movements roughly you're learning yes there may be different ways of learning them, different emphasis different teachers different whatever but generally you're learning to jump you're learning to vault you're learning to climb you're learning to swing you're learning to roll same as in sword fighting. Generally, you learn to cut, you learn to defend yourself, you learn to parry, you're learning to whatever. So, but they're different nuances. We're not teaching people the nuances. So, when we do coach education, we're saying that's your job to learn that as a student. Your job is to go off and practice and become good at sword fighting or become good at parkour. Our job is to teach you how to teach those skills to someone else. So, it's about learning the vehicle of delivering information, and that's coach education, which is very different from. Like you can have curriculums and there's nothing wrong with having curriculums too. They can be useful, but in ADAPT, the, the global parkour coaching qualifications, we do not teach a curriculum in a, a, any stage in the, in the process, at any stage of the qualifications. Um, huh. They are learning solely how to become an amazing coach. Um, if they, uh, elements of the course do involve biomechanics, um, strength training and all this sort of stuff. Cause that's, there's a lot of science around that. So we can say, look, this is the, yeah. this is how you develop strength. This is how you develop endurance. This is how you develop power. Um, this is how you help. These, these are the biomechanics of this movement. We can go into the science of that because it's hard to dispute those things. It's biomechanics and it's, and it's biology and anatomy yeah. and stuff. So you can teach that stuff and we do. Um, and we can teach technique in the stuff. If they want to learn technique, we will also say, yeah, there are courses where you can learn the technical stuff too. So if you want to become a teacher of parkour and you want the technical training, then come to these courses and these will teach you some technical stuff as well. But in order to become a coach, you don't need that. If you've already got your own 10 years of parkour background and you just want to now become a teacher, 
all we're going to do is teach you how to teach, which is coach education, which is okay. totally separate from technical training. Okay, but you need the, for the teacher to have something to teach. They need to have a kind of some kind of they need to be teaching a thing. Yes, how to jump over a fence or whatever, right? And they need to have students to teach that too. And at the at the end of the class, the students should be better at the thing than they were at the beginning of the class. Yep. Right. Okay. So, leaving aside the technical component of specifically how you jump over that fence, what do you do to teach the coaches how to be better at teaching the students? <laughs> that's a big, that's a big question. I, um, I, I ask because I'm, I'm writing. I am literally writing a book on how to teach right now, so I have a deep vested interest in this. Right, that's a big question. That's a whole other podcast okay. probably to go into coaching. Okay, science. fine. But, um, well, we, uh, we we can do that. But yeah, coaching. I mean, that's, that's obviously what I do and what I've done for the last last twenty years at great length um, and creating coach education systems. So, um, but you know, you're you're what are you teaching? So you're. First thing you're doing is looking at uh, 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 understanding how humans learn. So firstly, we're taking people and saying, do you understand how humans learn? How do humans learn things? What's the science of learning? Because if you know the science of learning, you can then learn the science of expertise. And the science. Of, if you know the science of expertise and how do you become good at something, you can then learn the science of teaching someone to become good at something. And you can then be able to teach anyone become good at anything, even if you don't know how to do that thing. Yes. So... Um, teaching is a general skill I absolutely yeah, agree yeah that's the first thing we tell people on the level one course is like coaching is separate from parkour so your parkour yeah. training is important and you must keep doing it but coaching is a separate discipline and we're now going to teach we're now going to look at that discipline so um, first thing you do is science of learning science of expertise then you look at then you get start getting into feedback loops and understanding that humans learn through feedback and teaching feedback loops and then you go into sources of feedback where do they get their feedback from and then you go into if you're managing and implementing if you're the one curating the feedback loops then you have to know how to create them and therefore you know how to deliver them through link, language psycholinguistics neurolinguistics cueing um, all this sort of stuff modeling um, you know uh, those are the hard skills and then you go into the, the you know the softer skills or whatever they that maybe is a way of saying it which is more about sort of uh, human relationships and emotional intelligence and 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 how why do people listen to you and and how do you how do you use language to make people feel comfortable and safe so they're in a learning space rather than a fear space or an intimidation space where they're not going to learn so all those things are and you could you could learn to study that stuff for years i mean people do there's it's a yeah. uh, these are massive studies of work so um so it's a question of getting people to understand that. First of all, understand these are things as a coach yes. that if you want to be a good yeah. coach, you're going to have to start learning. Um, and then like, how do we learn them? How do we practice them? How do we practice those things? How do you, how do you know that you're good at queuing? As you say, because how do you know you're good at measuring someone's progress so that you know they're better at the vault than they were at the beginning? How do you know that? Um, so it's it's a huge process. And that's why our education process is, is very rigorous and has lots of different levels of, of um, education in it. I do. Is it actually necessary to know any parkour to do that? To do no. That? So, that, so to become a good coach of something, you must know the thing, right? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm, no, what, I, what I mean is, I, I would be fascinated to take that. Process, oh, you would hundred percent. I, yeah. I am. I am not going to spend ten years studying. No, parkour no, hundred percent. So the level, the level one <laughs> is to, to to attend a level one training course, which is a three day coach education course. You do not have to have any parkour experience at all. Okay. When's the next one? Uh, in the UK, the next one in London is in March. 
Um, I, I will, I will, I will look it up. Yeah, you, 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 you would love it, man. And you don't need to have any, you know, having some poker experience is good, and having some sort of movement training experience is going to be good. You're going to, you're going to find the course more useful well, because you're going to be able to input more um, yeah. to the other people in the course. But you don't. We do get we get plenty of people that join the courses who have never done poker. They've done their fitness trainers, their sports people, mm-hmm. their athletes. They come because they want to learn about poker a bit, but they also want to learn about coaching and education. And then then yeah. it's up to them if they want to get to go further to get level two, level three, to get the level two, which is I suppose to be the equivalent of like a you know black belt in martial arts or whatever. We don't really see it like that, but to get the level two in coaching in parkour you must evidence you must be able to demonstrate that you can do these movements because now we're expecting sure. you to demonstrate them to other people so yeah. you must have some parkour training to do the level two and to pass the level two but to the level one it's very all you need to be able to do is move and therefore be able to coach in a movement setting and be able to use and un- demonstrate that you mm-hmm. can understand the coaching principles and manage a session and all that sort of stuff so you yeah you'd, you'd be perfectly, perfectly fine at level one man I would I would be fascinated because like one of the best things I ever did for myself as a teacher was I went on a sport fencing coaches course about twelve years ago now. Cool, nice. And my my main takeaway from it really, and it completely changed the way I teach everything, is that the coach's job is to be the feedback mechanism. Yes. Right. We're, we're giving a, a fencing lesson, so if the student does the thing they're supposed to do, they hit the coach, and the coach does not hit them. If they do something wrong, they fail to hit the coach and the coach hits them. Yeah. yeah. There's, there are some, there's a bit of wiggle room there, but that's basically it. And the feedback is done almost entirely through the sword itself. Yes. Right? There's absolutely no need to tell a person they've just got hit. Yeah. Right? And you don't need to discuss why they got hit. So if you want something to do an action faster, right, you simply make the window of time in which they, allow, they can do it smaller. Yes, yes. Right, so if they've got to hit you before you parry, you make the parry smaller and faster and faster and faster, yeah. and they'll hit you faster and faster and faster because they want to beat the parry. Yes. And it's that. It's That's what we're doing yeah. at, in one-on-one coaching. Yeah. So in and coaching, we, that's known as intrinsic feedback or task intrinsic right. feedback, which is, a, which is a very powerful source of feedback, yeah. Right. And then for a class, it's a bit trickier. Basically, what you have to do is get these students doing their pair drill stuff to basically set up a whole set of individual lessons. So one student is coaching the other and yep. using these same ideas to, to do it. And, and the goal of the class is just to create an environment in which that is the natural behavior. Yeah, what's so, called peer, peer coaching in, in coaching right. science. Yeah, you're getting, you're getting you're, 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 you as the head coach or as the coach of the class are creating an environment in which people coach each other. Yeah. So that's using peer coaching. Yeah, and it's super, super vital for human learning. Huh. Yeah, huh. yeah I... I, I, I I will, I will see if I can make those dates in March because I think this will be fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just come along, man. You'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. Let's do it. I've got, I've got about five um, minutes left, dude, and I've got to go unfortunately oh, to another oh. meeting. But Oh, right. Sorry, okay, I'm, okay. I'm, yeah, so, <laughs> sorry, I should have checked so, the time before. It's unfortunate because could, we, we could talk for days. So, but, um, we, yeah. Yes. And, and we can always do this again. Okay, so yeah, let sure. me just skip straight to my, my last question, which is what is the best idea you've never acted on? Yeah, so the best idea I've never acted on, I think, and I still kind of regret it, is um, is something. So when I was when I came back from university um, and was you know getting, I was doing parkour and stuff then. But I was I was back from uni and I was very uh, I was I was super into sword training and swordsmanship, and I had this idea to um, to travel the world and do, and I, I wanted to go and travel the world and f- find all the. Uh, sword schools, 
all the all the sort of traditional sword schools that still existed in every culture um and 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 spend time with them each one learn from them and then fight them so i wanted to go and spend some time with the school like a month of the school yeah train with them uh respectfully and then say can i duel in some way in whatever way you guys do it right can i duel your one of your swordsmen to see if what i do works to, as yeah, a pressure test so that was my plan and then um uh, a producer friend of mine was like, dude, we should make a documentary about that. And I was like, okay, cool. So we started talking, and we started talking to Tiger, which is a big production yeah. company at the time, about doing a documentary series called, we, I think we were going to call it The Edge of the World. Um, okay. Which was, and, and the idea was, was it would follow me doing this. Each episode would be yeah. me going, training with the school, learning about the culture of that, of that sword school. Why that's, I was very interested in why did sword, swordsmanship survive in some cultures and not others? I was very interested yeah. in those kind of questions. Um, and then at the end of the episode, there would be a fight to see if what I, what I do works and what they do works. I have a friend called Arman Alisad in Finland who did exactly that. And it's a TV series called Kill Arman. And Very it was generous. a bloody good thing to do. He got the shit kicked out of him for that. And that's why I call it Kill Arman. That's but great. Yes. That's great. You, so, so, so. I was planning to do that in want... 2000 and, and 2002. And. Okay. And wow. I really wanted to do it. We got quite far. I was talking to the production company. We started to map it out. We started to, you know, go through episodic mm -hmm. structure. But um, then the parkour stuff started getting kind of busier and busier. Um, yeah. And it was just like, I can't take a year out to go and travel and ah. do that when we're doing this. So so I had to let it go and, and start with the parkour stuff. And, and, you know, I don't regret that because I love what I do. But but. I wish I could have done that at the same time. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Uh, that's a really good, uh, and, and you know, there's still time. There is still time. Yes. Possibly. You could, you could, you could, you I've could got more time now, so, it, so it is the sort of thing I could do later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Brilliant. Okay. So, so Dan shows up in your sword school, people be nice to him for a while. And <laughs> Go easy beat the ever living shit out of him <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so okay. That's what I would want. That's what I would want though. Yeah. So, uh, Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dan. It's been great to see you again. No, you do, guys. You do. Yeah, and let me know if you want to come to that workshop. Then drop me a line, and I'll send you the details or whatever. We'll get you along. Brilliant. Right. Thanks, Dan. Awesome. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. And I should mention that we have spent an awful lot of time and effort, or rather, the lovely Katie and the excellent DJ have spent an awful lot of time and effort. Um, rebuilding sourceschool.com and creating the podcast page with like properly nicely arranged podcast episodes and everything um, you can tell from the fact that I'm completely unable to string a sentence together that it wasn't me that did that it was DJ who built the site and Katie who updated the podcast episode pages so do have a look at the all singing all dancing bells and whistles new website and tell me what you think about it. While you are there at sourceball.com forward slash podcast, looking up the episode show notes for Dan, you can also sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. The show costs me money to produce in terms of hosting and transcriptions and all the other bits and pieces that go into running a podcast and my patrons on Patreon basically subsidized this to some considerable degree. So if you would like to support us there, that would be awesome. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash 
the sword guy. Thanks as always to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Marie Powell, who is a writer, journalist, editor and author of educational books for children and novels for young adults. And it's really the novels that we're going to be talking about, particularly because her latest is a sword and sorcery epic set in a mythical Wales. But I don't just invite people on the show because they happen to have written a sword and sorcery book. I mean, because there are millions of people like that. But Marie has done a ton of research into this and we dig quite deeply into like medieval Welsh military culture and practice. And indeed, we go into, or she tells us all about the very first documented use of camouflage, which is <laughs> quite, quite something. I'll let her tell the story for you next week. Now, you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, do leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Music